It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we are looking at a very special subject. And I'd like to introduce my guest first of all, Mr. Alex Watt. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. How's uh, how's lockdown treating you? <laughs> this is lockdown special week ten, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 going okay. It's it's it, it's boring, and I haven't got much work. Um, yeah, it's pretty, um, it's pretty saved me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, I'm aiming to come out of lockdown with hair like yours, James, because my hair is getting wild at this point. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking to come out of lockdown like you know at least three stone heavier at the minute. Apparently, I don't think that's intentional. I think that's just the way <laughs> things are going to go. Yeah, there's, um, there's that for me as well. Yeah, it's it's very easy <laughs> to just just eat and drink and watch wrestling. Basically, that's that's yeah, it's too tempting really. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, today we are looking at um, well. It was a subject that Alex suggested, and I completely agreed, and I'm sure we'll talk about the choice of this particular subject momentarily. But before we start on the big subject for the day, there has obviously been a sad loss in the Joshi world, and as you know, I'm a Joshi wrestling fan, and a lot of the people listen to this podcast listen to it for the Joshi content, and we would be absolutely remiss if we did not talk about the passing of Hannah Kimura uh, yesterday. Um, I found out yesterday morning, I, I went to bed... Um, reading messages that Hannah was uh, sending some strange messages and people were worried about her health. And they got in contact with the stardom office and her friends. And then I woke up to find out the news that she passed away. And it hit me incredibly hard yesterday, I'll be honest with you. Hannah Kimura had potential to be an outstanding professional wrestler. But the thing that struck me most as I was reading through my Twitter feed was the fact that she was such a great human being a lot of the wrestlers, especially the veterans in Japan, talked about how she was mature beyond her years, how she was a locker room leader, how she welcomed everybody into the starter locker room and looked after them, how she tried exceptionally hard to represent professional wrestling in the best way, which is all you can ever ask for of a professional wrestler. And I loved watching her wrestle. She was an incredible professional wrestler. She was an incredible presence in the ring, her presence on social media as well. She was a light that light lit up the world. If you want to find out more thoughts about the, about my thoughts about her, I wrote her obituary on Empire Wrestling Magazine. You can go find it there. If you follow me or Ash or follow Empire Wrestling on Twitter, you can find it. Uh, Laura Morrow at Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine has written uh, a fantastic piece on her uh, called Remembering. Mine was called uh, uh, Hannah Kimura Prodigy, and uh, Laura's is called uh, Remembering Hannah Kimura, if you want to search those on Google to find them. Uh, Laura is a big fan of Hannah, and she wrote a very touching piece for Steel Chair, which I had the very much pleasure to edit. So if you want to go, re- go these, read those pieces, please do, because it celebrates her life, and we both discussed how... Uh, it doesn't feel right to give a stock obituary piece of this person did this and this person did this because it doesn't seem right. It seems wrong because she had such uh, an incredible life and did incredible things in a very short period of time. The only person, not female wrestler, the only person to wrestle at Madison Square Garden and the Tokyo Dome in a 12-month period. 
that's a fucking career. Mm-hmm. And don't ever, ever forget Hannah Kimura. Sorry, Alex, I had to speak some words. No, there. absolutely. It's been kind of a rough week on that front with obviously Hannah Kimura's passing, Shad Gasford too, like big kind of outpouring of love for both of them, which shows what incredible human beings they both were. Yes, as well as uh, Larry Zonka, who was a writer at 411 Mania. Yes, uh, Larry, yeah. Larry hit me hard because he was the first guy who gave me like writing work. Like basically I probably wouldn't be on this crazy career path without him like giving me a shot back like straight out of university with like had no idea what I wanted to do in my life and yeah he gave me like writing work in you know wrestling and MMA so yeah that was that was a an emotional one as well yeah it's it's just it's just not been a good week for any of us and I think this week has been it's just been hard work it just always is hard work at the moment because everything seems to grind and grind along and to be honest we live in a very uncertain world i mean we was talking about like our personal issues at the moment because of covid19 and how much you're working much more harder than you normally do because you work in media and media is one of the industries an essential industry as we have seen this weekend that this needs to be there and you have to work really really hard to keep keep up with that and similarly i have got not no work, but like half my income has disappeared. A lot of the things I plan to do this year, buy a car, learn how to drive, da, 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 just aren't happening because I've just got to sit home and eat noodles. And sometimes you just have to sit home and eat noodles and that's the yeah. way it is. So when yeah. something comes along like this, that is just, as we're all in a different headspace anyway, it's just been an awful week. Yeah, I think it kind of brings us on to the topic as well, because the other kind of emotional thing, and with the the Dark Side of the Ring documentary, and yeah, reliving a lot of that this past week, and some of the revelations in that documentary were, yeah, it was pretty rough to to see, like pretty horrific, to be honest. Yes, with today's document, to, to, to cheer us up, <laughs> to uh, today's, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh in situations, but sometimes you just have to laugh. Um, to do today's piece was, and we thought we will completely intend to do this, was seen as a bit of a tribute to Owen Hart, who would have passed away 21 years ago on Saturday. It was, um, Owen was one of my favorite wrestlers as a kid growing up, and I saw him from a very young age. So he was very impressionable on me, and he was part of the Hart family legacy. Now, it was Alex's idea to do this, uh, not mine, but I'm very glad he suggested it because I went back to relive some of that Owen Hart magic because, I correct me if you're wrong when I, when I say this, but it feels to me like Bruce and Brett and Smith and uh, the Hart brothers generally wrestled because it was the family business but owen loved professional wrestling does that make sense that's not to say that the other brothers didn't have a love of professional (laughs) wrestling but owen loved professional wrestling does that make sense it does it's interesting though because he was the guy who seemed it, it wasn't his whole life like he seemed keen to you know have a great career in wrestling and then move on from it when he'd sort of made enough money to where he could retire and just go and live comfortably with his family. So it it is interesting because you watch his work and some of these matches are just 
incredible, which we're going to talk about. Like you saw like his passion and his work rate and his understanding of like the nuances of wrestling and his charisma, like, cause people not to jump ahead too much, but Brett is obviously the one that is talked about as the best heart brother. He's probably the most well-rounded wrestler of them all, but I would say Owen is more charismatic. You know, he was just unbelievable the way he understood those nuances from even a very early age. Mm. Yeah, and I think these matches really do show off that. We're going to approach this how we approach the Ring of Honor Ring of Honor um, tribute streams on the YouTube. We put a playlist together, and when I picked. Partly some things that were available, and they might not be the best versions of these things because some of the quality isn't particularly great. But we picked different points in his career. We've concentrated on some matches, but I picked out certain ones to really show and highlight what Owen was really all about and what he, how he got to be the great wrestler that he was. And I would agree with you. I would actually rather watch Owen than Brett. And to a lot of people, that would be sacrilege. But he was the guy I grew up on. Hmm. He was the guy that I, I, I did grow up on, Brett, obviously. But I think Owen was a much smoother wrestler. He was a much better ring technician. He had a lot more um, going for him as far as mat work was concerned and aerial work. That is not knocking on Brett, because clearly Brett is one of the greatest wrestlers ever. You don't win 10 world titles without being. You know, <laughs> they don't put that belt on you for no reason. Uh, unless you're David Arquette. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, expect that to get a reference here. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think this is the, the thing for me is like Dynamite, Dynamite Kid had such a big influence on both Owen and Brett, but Dynamite's my favorite wrestler. That Lancastrian thing we talked about, uh, me and Sai have talked about in the Death of Brit Rest podcast, we, we talked about like that Lancastrian wrestling element. And Owen's a lot closer to that than Brett is. Brett is clearly influenced by the Lancastrians, by Davy Boy, by by Dynamite, because Dynamite taught him a lot of what he knew. But Owen has a much clearer line because he more or less got Dynamite's undivided attention for for a long period of time when he came to training, <laughs> you know. So it, it whereas Brett was having to learn and work the main event at the same time, which is really not conductive to making a great professional wrestler, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, you can see like from doing this like the influence like you say the british wrestling the japanese wrestling as well like he yeah yeah he had he owen was pulling from all these different styles in a way that you know brett was on top of the wwf for years and then he was on top in wcw and that's kind of his style if that makes sense he is yeah. very main event style in major a major north american way whereas owen always comes across as a little bit more, you know, pulling Rounded. from different areas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I could see, you can see Brett main eventing any North American company in any era, like Stampede, obviously, but ECW, WCW, he could, you could stick him in Jim Crockett promotions in 1979 and he'd do really well with Wahoo McDaniel. You could stick him anywhere in North America, but put him anywhere else and he wouldn't quite fit. Hmm. You know, because I've seen Brett's matches in Britain in the early 80s and they, they aren't good. <laughs> to put it bluntly, he's not great because he's working heel and, it, and he isn't a natural heel by that point. He isn't at the heart foundation stage. You know, he, he it, it's a grind for him when he's mm. used to being the big baby face. 
Whereas Owen slips from heel to baby so smoothly, and you like we watch we watch these matches, and he's like wrestling Hiro Hase as a heel in '88, and then as a babyface against Dynamite Kid in '89, and kind of a tweener against Keiji Muto in 1990, and then a full-on heel against Trishin Liger in '91. There's much more wider range of uh, character development for him in that in that time period, and he just adapts so well to everything he does. Yeah, no, I agree on that. I think as a that's where I was talking about his charisma, and particularly, you know, he's a very good babyface because obviously he look he looks like a babyface. He looks so yeah. useful, like throughout. Like he never really seemed to sort of age facially. But no. as a heel, like he was so good at switching into that heel persona, and obviously people point at that um 1994 heel turn in wwe wwf and that kind of bratty younger brother he was doing but he was displaying great heel tendencies you know before that in other promotions like you say and i think that was interest. what was interesting about doing it this way because we're gonna try and cover his work outside of wwe um and it's interesting because reading sort of his best matches in the last week, people automatically talk about his WWF work. They obviously talk about his matches with Brett, with Davey, with Sean, with Austin, um, the famous five-on-five match in Canada. But he has all this amazing work outside of WWE, which not necessarily gets forgotten, but probably isn't as appreciated as it should be. Because the thing that kind of made me think about this and pitch this to you as an idea for the podcast i was listening to uh chris jericho's podcast with martha hart which everyone should definitely go and listen to Mm. um if they haven't already because it's great as kind of a companion piece to the dark side of the ring documentary but uh jericho was saying he hopes that more people now start recognizing what a kind of pioneer owen was for that kind of junior heavyweight style of wrestling as a a canadian you know gaijin wrestler particularly in japan yeah definitely i mean we should start with the first match and that really shows it off i mean the first match on this list is fit finley and the late rocky moran against owen hart and ross hart from 1984 and the hart brothers came to the uk on a fairly regular basis it's where Ross had found, uh, or Bruce actually had found the Dynamite Kid and taken him back to Canada, and then Davy Boy Smith. Um, and Fit Finley and Rocky Moran were absolutely perfect for the Hart Brothers. This was a, a tag team tournament, uh, a four-team tag team international tournament with uh, two men from Ulster, <laughs> two men from Canada, <laughs> two men from England, and two men from Jim, from the West Indies. Lovely. Um, I'm guessing the West Indies guys would have been Iron Fist, Clive Myers, and somebody else of African, Afro-Caribbean descent. <laughs> Probably Johnny Kincaid. But, you know, um, yeah, West Indies, famously, as we've talked about so often, Johnny Kincaid from Bermuda, because no one at the joint office could spell Bermondsey. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fit Finley and Rocky Moran were fantastic wrestlers. Rocky Moran's no longer with us, sadly. But Fit was world mid heavyweight champion. He was, he was having the big feud with Marty Jones at the time. He was one of the biggest heel draws in the company, in the country. Um, and then he drops down to this tag team tournament for a TV. It was the first time there was a tag team tournament on ITV for a full day because ITV didn't push tag matches on television. 
because things might get a bit exciting and people will expect it on a regular basis. So they only did one very rarely. So this was really rare stuff. And I can remember watching this when I was a 10-year-old because I watched every wrestling show that was going at the time. And Owen Hart, at this stage, comes in and wrestles this state-of-the-art match that finishes the first, second fall with a German suplex, which I'd never seen in my life because, obviously, I was too young to see Karl Gotch in European wrestling. I didn't know what a German suplex was. It was like the world had come undone. <laughs> not, just, not just a German suplex as well, a backflip off the top turnbuckle, yeah. then into the German suplex. <laughs> just like, like, you know, you've got to bear in mind that the most aerial manoeuvre you saw in British wrestling, with good reason, by the way, was Marty Jones' sent on splash off the top rope. And the reason for that was because at least Marty could land with his feet first and take some of the rough edges off the blow on a ring, which was about as much giving it as a safe. <laughs> with full of concrete. The reason why the world of sports style is so mat orientated and escapology orientated is that people don't hurt themselves. And this was a good example of that, how to work that kind of style within this match. It's aerial without being dangerous and it's exciting without like taking too much on in an opening card match because obviously there comes a point where if you're too flashy, you tend to outshine the veterans who are supposed to go on and win the tournament. Mm. <laughs> what did you think of this one, Alex? Well, kind of keys into what you said at the start as well with Owen's, I guess, inherent understanding of wrestling. Like, he's 18 years old here. Um, yeah. He's very skinny as well, which is quite interesting <laughs> because a few years later, you know, he really had already started to fill out into his body. So it was strange seeing him so young and so wiry, actually. Yeah. Um, and obviously the big talking point outside of that, you know, we talk about mullet watch, but what about moustache watch? In this oh, watch? yeah. There are some, there are Rocky some moustaches oh, on display. I would slightly have to say, uh, sadly, it is pre-mullet Fit Finley. Yeah, that was that was the only letdown, really. Yes, <laughs> having said that, Rocky Moran's perm and, and Tash combo is just outstanding. Oh, just so absolutely 80s. outstanding. <laughs> so gloriously 80s. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Ross Hart sporting a, a lovely moustache as well. It was. It, it was very well honcho kind of look from Ross Hart, I think, to be honest with you. Whereas Rocky Moran was more, I don't know, uh, a bit more Sooness. Oh, it's very Sooness. It, it is. very Sooness. <laughs> it is. But, yeah. What did you think? Because I'm guessing you might not have seen this match as you're way too young to have seen it like the first time around. No, yeah, the um, no, the British stuff I hadn't seen either of these. I really this was enjoyable. It's the the next one we're gonna come on to, which kind of blew my mind even more. But yeah, when we're talking about um, how innovative mm. Owen could be, you know, like you you mentioned this that um, way he makes it one one with the backflip into the German and the action from the crowd is like. What? <laughs> what <is this> <laughs> <laughs> but even Dave Finn is like, hey? Yeah. Well, I enjoyed that they then work into the finish itself, where he tries to do it again to Finley, and Finley's like, nah, just forearms him <laughs> full on in the face and basically brutalizes him for the win in a very, yeah. I'm, kind of way, really. Yeah. I'm the big boy here. You. You've had your moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> sit down now, take the fall. Um, but yeah, that it was just a nice little, you know, just to see him at 18 pulling off this stuff. And yeah. it does kind of fit into this idea of what Jericho was saying of him 
being more innovative than he's given credit for because like you've said you know it's on a british world of sport card where no one's seen that happen before and he's like the guy who decides to crack that out yeah it's like it must have been like something similar to like the first time someone did a slam dunk in a pro basketball game mm. or you know someone the first time someone bent a ball around a wall in a, in a from a free kick yeah and people were, ah, you know, it's one of them. It, it just like it was insane. The place just went mental for it because they're just not seeing anything like it. Because partly because you know, Rocky Moran's a tough lad and would quite happily probably take a German suplex, but it's not the safest of things if you get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, Rocky Moran, I, they'd had a fair amount of experience in Ireland as well as the UK, so we've probably seen somebody do it before or tried it in practice. And obviously, Rocky Moran came from. Dave Finley the second's training program, um, and Dave Finley the second looked after the Irish national wrestling team. You know, he was a serious Irish amateur wrestler as well as a pro. Um, so he would undoubtedly have seen something similar. Ah, I see what you're going at, and yeah, and gone with it. But mm. yeah, it's it, it just unreal, just un, unreal. Uh, much like the second match on this list, which is still one of my all-time favourite matches and was for a long time my favourite ever match. It's the match that made me a lifetime fan. Um, if I, I would still probably be watching wrestling but with nowhere much intensity and passion and that is Owen Hart versus Mighty Jones for the mid-heavyweight championship of the world in 1987, Croydon Town Hall. And I implore you to watch this match because this is how a professional wrestling main event should be done. I don't care what style it is. I don't care what country it is. This is still a thrilling main event wrestling match some, what, 33 years later. And it still send, gives, sends chills down my spine watching it 33 years later. 33 years later. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I, you've watched this again. You've watched this for the first time. What's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, well, I, I can see why it made your lifetime fan because when we're talking about ahead of its time and that will probably come come up a few times when we're talking about Owen Hart here like this is tremendous like this is so good I mean first of all any listeners who haven't maybe seen a lot of world of sport get ready for the most British experience of your life (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the commentary the the ring announcements at the start um Shout out to the two women at ringside who are oh, so yeah. into it. I love that. Like, that's so old school British wrestling. Um, but yeah, I mean, just fantastically worked. Like you say, I hadn't seen this one before. And yeah, definitely one of my favorites from this sort of collection we've put together. You know, it's just a great wrestling match. You know, yeah. not many strikes thrown. You get like a knee from Owen at one point, forearm smash from Marty, few European uppercuts here and there. But basically, the majority of it is very map-based, but then they're showcasing, you know, technical skill. There's flashes of athleticism with, you know, there's high spots that, like, for 1987, the way they build to those spots is just so clever, particularly in the... You know, this is done in that old school 12 rounds, three minutes each. Yeah. The way they're able to build the match so effectively with, you know, Owen really dominating early on and then Marty able to kind of come into it in the later rounds. You know, the story sort of being he kind of figures out Owen's style, whereas early mm. on he's kind of thrown by 
Owen cracking out some of this high flying stuff, you know, his rope jump escape that he used yeah. to do, which is, again, just crazy that he was doing that on a world of sports show. In, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. jumps up to the top, you know, springboards and bounces back. Um, and then I think that leads to uh, maybe leads to the first fall. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. 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 Where. He goes for the Hurricane Rana, I believe, and pins him off that for the first pinfall. Yeah, it's just it's just stunning. It's just so good. And there's a good story going into it as well. By this point, Marty Jones, arguably one of, if not the most influential professional wrestlers in the world. His feud with Mark Rocco in the mid-19, late 1970s over the British Light Heavyweight Championship had elevated both of them to incredible status amongst professionals at the time. As William Regal's pointed out many occasions, it was those two that really started the uh, wave of junior heavyweight wrestling around the world. You know, it started with them. Dynamite and Tiger Mask took it to a different level and then it mm-hmm. built and built and built over the decades. But it was really those two that really kind of set this strong style is not quite the right word, but that style of wrestling that we expect junior heavyweight wrestling today became started with Mark Rocco and and Marty Jones, and we will talk about that on the death of Brit Rest sooner rather than later, I hope. But Jones and Jones and Rocco were it. They become the main event for joint promotions for a long time. And uh, Rocco moves on to work with All Star Promotions, but Jones is still the the man when it comes to British wrestling. And the World Mid Heavyweight Championship is the premier championship, especially when Wayne Bridges takes the heavyweight title to, to All Star as well. And but there's only so many things you can do with Marty Jones as champion. He had the big feud with Dave Finley in the early 80s. They swapped the championship back and forth. I had the absolute pleasure of being there in person for one of those matches. Um, and then around about 86, they're looking for a new way of presenting it. And Stephen Wright, who is one of Marty Jones' old friends, that's Alex Wright, Alex Wright of WCW's fame's father. He is back from Germany from a German tour. And they bring him in as Bull Blitzer, a German, to be, to be honest, a particularly xenophobic German character, uh, yeah. <laughs> who beats Marty Jones. Now, he's actually Steve Wright from Warrington, <laughs> who trained in the pit, who trained in the snake pit with Marty Jones. He's about as German as my Hawaii, my Hawaii phone, but uh, it sets up this. And it was an absolute classic wrestling match. And then it sets up six months of storytelling because Marty has to go through all the qualifiers to get a championship up shot at Bull Blitzer. And then Bull Blitzer refuses the championship, so they have to bring in Owen Hart, who's the other number one contender for the World Mid Heavyweight Championship, as a finalist, as a final showdown for the championship. And they have this incredible blow-off match. And not only does it help that Owen becomes a bigger star in the UK because of it. He's not there very often, but it, it means that Owen's wanted back by the fans without making him a heel. They, if they made him a heel, they won't want to see him again and he won't be able to do half the things he's doing, but it makes Marty an even better champion because he's had such, such, such tough competition in this all time classic wrestling match. It's such a brilliant tourist story to tell. And within two years, there's no more wrestling on television. So you have to tell these stories to keep your draw. Yeah, and I, like I say, I think the the story they tell through the match is so well done. And yeah, yeah. 
so the fact they're able to do it within that kind of structure of a wrestling match is is so impressive. Yeah, it's just it's just so good. You have to see this match to believe it. That yeah. It was happening in the place it was happening, where it was happening, in the time it was happening. You know, WWE couldn't put this match together. This is the thing, like watching. We've covered quite a lot of this stuff from like the late eighties, early nineties, and this. You know, looking at the stuff Owen was doing, it's like it's crazy how much they want to because the stuff this would blow if you only know Owen Hart's work from the WWF the stuff he is doing would blow your mind I think yeah like yeah. when he was doing it as well a lot of that was because the majority of his WWF run I was as a heel and like when they did the Brett and Owen angle uh the 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 Owen heel turn on Brett and they had the match at WrestleMania 10. They actually rehearsed that match. It's unusual for the time. And Brett said, "I we Brett Owen wanted to do a bunch of stuff, and he was pretty technical in that match. It was a pure wrestling match, and it was absolutely fantastic. And Owen wanted to do a bunch more aerial stuff, but Brett said, you can't do that because they'll cheer you and boo me, and then yeah. your draw's gone because you'll be the baby face, and we can't... This is the greatest world in the world. We can't make you the babyface in the situation. Otherwise, nobody will want to see us wrestle again. You know, because that's the way it works. You know, sometimes somebody has to be the heel. In that situation, Owen had to be the heel. Brett was the babyface. It was the right decision to make. But he 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 could have. Things have gone out differently. I mean, even the Blue Blazer stuff, it was just flying about. It wasn't really intentioned main event wrestling like this is. Yeah. There's, that's the big difference, you know. And even you look at some of this stuff that we're watching. Like these are all big singles matches, with the exception of one squash match from WCW. But we'll talk about that later because it's a different kind of inception. <laughs> but when you get to the Blue Blazer, which was not long after this point, actually, oh maybe maybe around this time, I think that was the next job he had. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, it wasn't really what Owen was great at. He did squash matches, you know, and that was not an awful lot else in WWF because it just didn't work because it wasn't really what Owen was about. Owen was a journeyman wrestler who would make a great match with anyone. That was his job. And WWE doesn't doesn't reward that necessarily. Not in 1987, 1988, it doesn't, definitely not. No, absolutely not. You know, it doesn't reward the – it rewards you if you're in your 30s, but it doesn't reward you if you're in your 20s. That's, that's the difference. Mm. But let's go on to Japan. And New Japan Pro Wrestling had a strong talent swap agreement with Stampede Professional Wrestling. This was by the time this had come around. Uh, Stu Hart had sold the Stampede to WWE, or WWF as it was at the time, in a talent swap deal that included the Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation and the Bad News Brown and a couple of other people that Stu thought would work well in New York. And Vince was happy to take. In fact, to the point where Vince <laughs> Falil danced on his desk when he signed the Bulldogs. Believe it or not. <laughs> um, and Stampede was really no more. Obviously, Owen was training in the dungeon around this time. And then in the late 80s, uh, Stu brought back Stampede and got permission from Vince McMahon to restart the company. Um, and part of the talent swap deals that they had in place was the trade agreement with New Japan Pro Wrestling. So Owen went to New Japan uh, from time to time uh, and from tour to tour and started off as a junior heavyweight. So the first match is against Hiroshi Hase, who wasn't that long out of his 
dojo stint, even if he may well have been in his dojo stint at this point. Hiroshi Hase, former Olympic wrestler, I think he was a gold medalist at the 1980 Olympics or maybe an 84 Olympics, outstanding professional wrestler, these days works for the education department of the Japanese government and is a former uh, member of the day as well. But as a wrestler, was outstanding and was a brilliant junior heavyweight. What are your thoughts on this one, Alex? Yeah, so on that podcast that I was speaking of, the Jericho podcast with Martha, she mm. said the matches Owen had with Hase were some of her favourites that he had in his career. Um, and that was quite fun as well, because she, she said, like, oh, I hope he's doing well, and Jericho, like, explained that he's a politician <laughs> in Japan now. So, yeah, he's doing very well. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think this match might have been... Is this the one where Owen wins the junior heavyweight title, yeah. potentially? Yeah. Mm. So, shows you how highly rated he was, you know. Yeah. He's yeah. the first guy to actually win that championship. Um, and yeah, when we're talking about being ahead of your time and everything else, like again, the athleticism is so impressive. Yeah. And something you know, he, something he does in a lot of these matches is like that effortless way he'd just jump over opponents when they ran ran at him. Yeah. You know, off the yeah. ropes was like even that is like that's insane athleticism. It looks like <laughs> you're not even trying. Um, and yeah, this this was just a really well worked match of what you would expect, I guess. You know that blend of high flying technical submission work, um, bit of Japanese brutality as well, <laughs> particularly with like the brainbusters, backdrop drivers, and yeah, they did have a real chemistry and smoothness in the ring in all their matches. Um, and yeah, you got the unexpected finish where Owen goal goes for that roll and pin combo sort of disorientates him and then hits the Hurricane Rana to get the pin, which would have been, I guess, a massive shock at the time for a guy to pin the Japanese wrestler for a title. Um, Like I say, I think, yeah, he was the first guy to win the title. And when people are pointing to him as a pioneer, as a junior heavyweight, that kind of proves their point. You know, I think up until... I was looking at the list of champions and I think up until, you know, recently, the last what decade or so where there's been mm. that real influx in Japan of like, you know, Devitt and Loki or me, Omega, Osprey, Skirl. Before that, it was like you could count on one hand the amount of guys from outside of Japan who'd actually won that title. So And and, and the daft thing is they all either came from the same family, married into the same family, or were trained by that family. Pretty much, yeah. Because <laughs> you're talking, you're talking Brett, you're talking Dynamite, Davy Boy Smith, um, Benoit, Benoit, Harry Smith. Yeah. <laughs> we had two called Scorpio and uh, Black Cat. And that's about your lot, really. Oh, they Mark Rock, Mark Brocco. They didn't even all win the title. That's the no, thing. Like, no, I mean, guys, at the I mean, Harry Smith did. Um, Devitt did, obviously. That's one person who did come in as an import that was very successful. But Devitt was really the really the first guy who didn't come in to that junior heavyweight scene as a main event player who was from the Hart dynasty, really. Yeah. No, it's really interesting looking at the history of the title and how few guys from outside Japan had actually won that belt before you know, Devitt yeah. kind of kick-started that influx then yeah. of all these guys coming in where 
yeah, you, now like there's been quite a number of guys who've held it, but yeah, it's it was surprising. Yeah, and Owen was the first guy to do it, and it was interesting on the podcast as well. Like Jericho was say wondering whether New Japan might honor Owen in some way in the future. Um, which would be interesting to keep an eye on because Martha said she'd be like open to that if that yeah. was something yeah. they wanted to do because it's been nice because they've always done that championship montage for the heavyweight title. They've started doing it for the junior heavyweight title now and it's been kind of heartwarming when you see like Owen's picture pop up yes. amongst all these champions. Yeah, it did give me a warm fuzzy feeling the first time I saw it. I was like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think he was genuinely beloved in Japan. We'll see in the one of the last matches in this particular tape with selection we've looked at how much he was respected. But speaking of junior heavyweight pioneers, the one feud that really mattered in Stampede Wrestling in the 1980, late 1980s was the Dynamite Kid and Owen Hart. That was special because it was Master versus Student. It was Dynamite at probably his peak as a talker, and his mm-hmm. peak as a went past his peak as a worker, but he was booking. He had creative control for the first time in his career, and there is a match on here which they actually had to do again. Believe it or not, it was that <laughs> popular. Stu Hart booked it twice, um, and it's a street fight between Dynamite Kid and Owen Hart, Summer Sizzle in nineteen eighty nine. It's violent. It's crazy. There's mass interference, and it's such a rollicking fun ride, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it keys into what you were saying of Owen's versatility because he is so the baby face. <laughs> this one. Like, like so beloved and Dynamite obviously is playing up to just being a nasty bastard, basically, <laughs> and reveling in it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned like his mic skills as well because, yeah, the, the video we watched, it had the promos, pre-match promos from both of them. Shout out to Owen and his lovely stripy shirt. And, yeah. But Dynamite's promo skills, again, a lot of people probably wouldn't realise how good he was because yeah. he was never given a mic in no. WWF. So Probably because of his accent, let's face it, because yeah. he was bloody northern, that's for sure. <laughs> but he was tremendous like he was really good as a talker like I think that was like that's so underrated as part of his arsenal and I think I I think actually it reminded me of early bullet club Kenny Omega okay I think in in the sense of like you know Kenny was playing this um cobra influence cokehead who couldn't control himself Dynamite yeah. was a cokehead who couldn't control himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> no offence, Dynamite. God rest you. But you will admit that you were not really in full realm of your faculties at this particular point in 1989. And, but it, and he really channeled that into his promos. And Omega grew up on Stampede Wrestling. He'd seen that stuff. Yeah. No, that's, you know? that's a good shout. Because, yeah, it was... That's bringing with what Dynamite was doing, like bringing in that aspect into the character because the way he's working it as a heel, it's quite that kind of erraticness to like, what (laughs) what is he going to do next? You know, and that's what keys into it being so brutal, you know, and Owen having to like crack out a pile driver on the floor at one point just to like get a bit of reprieve, you know? Yeah. 
is they're you know they're both bleeding by the end of it and yeah beating the crap out of each other as you say as well like the the run-ins which is very it's interesting watching this in the context of this collection as well to go from you know british wrestling you know one-on-one yeah. on one, no interference japanese wrestling no interference <laughs> and this is like all the interference that we can get. And this was, to be fair to it, it was a main blow-off match, and Dynamite and Bruce were booking, I think, at the time, or it may have been um, Ross. And Ross was the kind of guy who liked gimmicks, and Dynamite was a straight-ahead wrestling kind of guy. And this seems to be a nice compromise between the two. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I think... I'm not having to dig it. I think it was like... It works really well in the context yeah. of the match, you know, because... They do the ref bump, and then when Owen kicks out after the running on the ref bump, the place goes nuts. Like, yeah. and then Dynamite hits him uh, with the diving head put straight after that. He kicks out again, and the crowds erupt him because Owen is surviving everything, which is classic wrestling storytelling. And then yeah. you get the interference again at the end. It backfires. Owen gets the win. It's yeah. It's very classic North American book in that one. And well, yeah. It's been overdone now, you know, as we know. <laughs> but yeah, for this time, like it's done perfectly. When it's done right, it, it, it's still something that works. The, the other major players in this particular match, for those of you who are trying to keep score at home, uh, that would be the <laughs> Dynamite Kids manager, John Foley, who was also from Wigan. Johnny Smith, that's Davy Boy Smith's cousin, he was also from Wigan. <laughs> Sporting uh, uh, a mullet, I believe. Yes, at the absolute peak of all mullets <laughs> you'll ever see. Just fucking glorious. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Larry, lethal Larry Cameron, who went on to be a big star in catch wrestling and was due to be a big star in New Japan Pro Wrestling, but unfortunately passed away before he had a chance. New Japan were quite big on him. Apparently also Bats was big on him too. He really liked him, and he never really got where he needed to go, unfortunately. But there you go. Uh, the next match on our selection is Kieji Muto. Not the great Muto. That's a different wrestler. Kieji <laughs> Muto in 1990, especially in this particular time period, because he was swapping back and forth between two characters. And watching Kieji Muto wrestle... I think this was even prior to the Great Muta. I don't think he'd uh, come up with that character uh, just yet. Oh, no, he had. No. Great Muta was, well, he was Keiji Muto in 1984 to 1986. Then he was Super Ninja from 86 to 88 in World Class and in um, Florida. He was even Super Ninja when he was wearing bog standard New Japan black tights and black boots in Florida. There was a big, <laughs> big Florida NWA card where he's wrestling somebody in a cage in standard black tights and black boots. Breeze a heel because he's Japanese, obviously. Um, and then <laughs> he was the great Muter in Gary Hart's JTEX Corporation from 1988 to 1989 when he returned to New Japan Pro Wrestling as Kieji Muto. And then when the occasion demanded it, like a big title match at the Tokyo Dome, he would become Kieji the Great, or he'd become the great Muter. Ah, there you go. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, and then I think it was 92, we spent an entire year when he was NWA World Heavyweight Champion and IWGP Heavyweight Champion and having those big matches with Hogan, he was the great booter for the whole year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's been on again, off again ever since, depending on, you know, what the Dark Lords say and what's <laughs> going to draw more money. <laughs> but back in this fight, we was the nice, friendly, collegiate, nice wrestler, Keiji Muto, who was just about to go bald. Um, 
this was a bit of a corker because Keiji Muto in this time period, he didn't really have bad matches and Dynam Owen Hart could not have a bad match with anything. Dave Meltzer said the other day on, on Twitter that Owen Hart could not possibly have a bad match. Even the match he had with Mick Foley where they were trying purposefully to, bad was, to be bad was one of the most entertaining matches he ever saw. Yeah, I, I was yeah I was reliving that the other day as well because wasn't yeah. the whole point of that they just wanted to make Austin laugh and break character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically <laughs> he was yeah. at ringside. Yeah, that was it. And apparently, Steve, Steve, if Steve laughed, they'd won. Yeah, <laughs> so they just got steadily more ridiculous with the stuff. They're like the weapons they were using and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. They looked, Mick looked over into the corner and he, Steve was just laughing into his peer, going, "You two are the shits." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, back to serious wrestling. Keiji Muto versus Owen Hart was a bit tasty, mm-hmm. um, though it was junior versus heavyweight, so it was fairly obvious he was going to win. Yeah, this was interesting as well because, yeah, like you say at that time, Owen's a junior, Muto, Muto is the heavyweight, and the surprising part was Owen gets so much offense in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's a fully even match, dominates a big portion of it, and... You know, Muto was on the fast track to the top at this time as well yeah. in New Japan. So it wasn't just any heavyweight. It was going to be one of their top guys for the next few years. And, yeah, it's something we've we've spoken about on other podcasts. Like, remember when Osprey took on Okada a few years ago? Hmm. Um, and although it was a good match, they made it pretty clear that one guy was the heavyweight and therefore yeah. the better guy, you know? Yeah, Whereas in yeah. this one, it felt very even. You know, it's only recently that um, in New Japan, they've kind of blurred those lines more with, like, Osprey and Shingo being in the G1. This yeah, year just gone. But really, before that, it was very separate. Like, and heavyweights are going to beat junior heavyweights, like, yeah. every time. There was, was that a, clear divide. There was a concerted effort with the Never Open Weight Championship to do what it says on the tin and Open Weight Championship, anyone could challenge for it. Yeah. And that Shingo is really the first person, or well, I suppose Osprey was, is the first junior to really take it on and, and really wrestle for it and give it good matches and stuff as a junior versus heavyweight concept. Um, there was a period in the early 2000s when I think it was Ricky Chosu took over, maybe Hirohase took over the book. No, it was Ricky Chelsea took over the book and he tried to get rid of the junior heavyweight division in its form and promoted Liger and a bunch of other people to heavyweight and it just didn't work. Mm. Um, and the, hence the reason why it's a bit more clearly delineated now in the mid-card you can get away with it. Like Will Ospreay can beat Shingo and Will mm. Ospreay could probably beat Ishii but it's not going to be Nao yet. He yeah. will do that. He will do in time but he won't do it yet. I think they're getting more... It felt like they were building Mm. up more to where it was more on the same level. And in part because, let's face it, they don't want Osprey to go up to heavyweight because (laughs) they need him at junior heavyweight. So they matches. He's announced himself as a heavyweight and he's not going to do juniors anymore. So, you know, but also there's reasons for that because they want to give Hiromu Takahashi room to breathe. And if you've got Osprey in the same division, he hasn't got room to breathe. Takahashi. Takahashi has potential to be the biggest star in the company, bigger than NATO is now, and bigger than Okada is now. So you want to give that room to breathe. Yeah, and I think a big part of that was them waiting for Takahashi to come back and everything else. But yeah, it's been interesting watching them blur the lines a bit more recently, whereas, yeah, at this time it was very 
divided. And that's why watching this, it was so interesting to see Owen dominate such a big portion of the match. Because it would have been... I don't think people would have been surprised watching it if Muto had, you know, dealt with him a bit easier yeah. than this. Um, and actually, like you say, it's a really good back and forth match. And you're starting to see Owen develop into like this real ring general around this point where he is like dictating the pace of the match. You know, he's working kind of subtly heel, not quite heel, more of a tweener. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's doing stuff like when he's putting the Muta lock, he, like, mm. rakes, gouges the eyes to get out of it and stuff like mm. that. And he gets frustrated. I think he gets um, Muto in a submission hold and gets frustrated that Muto gets the ropes and just starts punching him, you know, kind yeah, of yeah. that. Not those North American things kind of infiltrate in the Japanese style, you know, that kind of heelish way, if you like. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just a really nice piece of work overall. It's, it's and, yeah, it's a really entertaining match. It tells a story that, that needs to be told with these two wrestlers. Yeah, and yeah, again, you've got that high impact close and stretch, which works mm. really nicely. And, you know, Owen's moonsault, moonsault doesn't get the job done, but Muto's does, which is, yeah. I guess... In the end, the heavyweight does, <laughs> does have that little bit extra, so they got it in at the end. The temerity of trying to take on a take on Keiji Muto and put a moonsault on him. What was he thinking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we move on to the next match, which is really one of the matches that's kind of like the classic rivalries of Owen Hart's career. Jushin Thunder Liger in 1991. Yeah. Jushin Liger, arguably the greatest junior heavyweight that ever lived. Owen Hart. Certainly one of the guys that influenced Jushin Liger was a big influence on the people around him. I think you could fairly say that Jushin Liger, Mark Rocco, Marty Jones, uh, Owen Hart were the four guys in 91. They were the guys all around the world who could deliver main event matches of the highest quality. Mm-hmm. And this was just like all of those four. These two happened to be in the same promotion at the same time and put on barnstorming matches. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, probably Owen's most famous match outside yes. of WWE. It's the one that, yeah. when we're talking about how people might not have seen a lot of these matches, this is the most likely the one people would have seen from his work outside of WWE because it yeah. was very talked about at the time. Um, kind of a low-key classic, a lot yeah. of people consider it. Um and yeah, like you say, two of the top junior heavyweights in the world, both pioneers. Um, yeah, and Owen is a full pelt here, <laughs> like showing everything he could do. When we talk about, you know, how people who know him solely from his WWF days would be shocked. Like, this is, he's pulling out some stuff here. Like, yeah. it's really impressive. Um, you know, the, like the athletic escapes and stuff, the dives to the outside, how effortlessly he leaps to the top rope. Um, loads of hard-hitting strikes as well. I think this is the first time, or earliest time I've seen an arm DDT. This was 91. I didn't see a really arm or a leg DDT until the early 2000s from anyone else. You wow, know? Yeah. yeah, he was he was well ahead of the curve and what he was trying to do, but he had the guys to work with. You know, yeah. Not long after this, Liger goes to WCW, I think, for World War Three, and the guys just can't work with him because he's just that far ahead of the time. They were on Botchamania where he tried to do something 
and the other guy just collapsed in a heap. <laughs> <laughs> he just didn't know what to do. <laughs> like, he just, like, threw his hands up in the air and tagged out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, for God's sake. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, whereas Owen Hart was just, he was one of the few guys who could keep up with Liger on that kind of creative level. And the finish, dear God, the finish in this match. My God, Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why no one does the top rope DDT anymore, because it's really dangerous, stupidly dangerous. So, of course, when Justin Liger says to Owen Hart, do you fancy being dropped off your head from the top rope? And he goes, of course I do, because I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was very safe, by the way. It didn't look particularly unsafe, but you still like dropping a guy on his head from seven feet, but, well, six, what, eight, 11, 10 feet up? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a high lesson for catastrophe, a high risk of catastrophe happening, but this. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a there's a lot of that. <laughs> That's like, it all <laughs> kind of kicks up into another gear in the last few minutes, build into that. It does. Yeah, a crazy DDT <laughs> off the top, because it's basically like when Owen hits like a, that running belly to belly, it mm. sort of picks up from that point on in, in pace and the crowd reaction just keeps lifting and lifting and ramps up from there. And there's, yeah, yeah Owen hitting the moonsault. Um, there's an electric chair drop from the top as well, which yeah. is pretty damn insane too. Um, and yeah, th- watching it, I was actually like, I kind of wish it had got another five minutes even. because <laughs> They were going at such full tilt. They built and built and built. Yeah. And they were, you know, do- pulling out all the crazy stuff in the last few minutes. And then, he, you know, Liger hits the DDT and finishes it, and it's actually a little bit abrupt. It's obviously the correct finish, you know, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. a crazy move off the top, but I think they could have had a couple more minutes even before that point, and it would have been maybe even more incredible because they were they were cracking out some crazy stuff in those last few minutes. Yeah, I mean, the, the Will Ospreay Hiroma Takahashi matches you saw like 18 months ago, this match is the grandfather of those matches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, just the layout, the way it was paced, the moves they were trying to get to, you know, the speed at which they were going. Yeah, I, I think maybe Kushida versus Roman was very similar kind of uh, pace as well. Um, and Kushida was probably closer to Owen Hart than most people think because he was a map-based ground-and-pound kind of guy. And Owen was really, but he had a really good aerial arsenal. It's a good shout that, actually. Yeah. There are a lot of similarities and yeah, this goes back to like when people are saying he's a pioneer, like Jericho said, everyone basically works this style nowadays. You know, when he's yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. I look at the guys in AEW, and most of the roster is doing stuff like this, and Owen yeah. was doing it back in like the late 80s. Exactly. Um, from the sublime to the ridiculous, obviously <laughs> Owen's time in Stampede was up because Stampede, Stewart finally decided to retire by the time we get to 1990. There's no more big draws. Dynamite's gone back to the UK um, and Stampede has run its course. So looking for a North American home on his tours. Owen ends up in WCW of all places. Wild. <laughs> like, I I think most people forget this even happened, to be honest. Yes. Uh, he wasn't there for long. He did one TV taping tour, didn't catch on, and moved on with his life. Funnily enough, to all sorts of European action, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he, yeah, he tagged with Ricky Morton in a... In a uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it was a job match. Joey Mags, though, loved Joey Mags as a kid. He was awesome. 
He yeah. had a big run. <laughs> he had a really big run in the USWA under Eddie Gilbert. Eddie Gilbert really believed in him and gave him a shot in the USWA. I'm glad somebody did because Joey Max was a good wrestler. I should have had more, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Personal hill to die on, but there you go. Um, Larry Zabisco and Tony Schiavone on commentary. Ricky Morton being, you know, frigging Ricky Morton. He doesn't look any older now. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> I know you only included this on the playlist because of Ricky Morton's mullet. So, <laughs> Ricky Morton's mullet is still as good today as it was 30 years ago. It actually is as well. Like, it's crazy how, how he's kept it in such good shape. Ricky Morton keeps promising he's going to slow down, but now he's, now he's producing Canadian Destroyers on national television. I don't yeah. think he will. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Who? Right then. But yes, it was very, very good. After this, Owen moves on to the European circuit again because he's one of those world travellers, a bit like Marty Jones, a bit like uh, William Regal was in this time people, uh, Tim time period. He goes all over the world. I, next time I see him is on Eurosport, which was producing a French television wrestling show commentated on by Welsh promoter Oric Williams. And Oring was, uh, knew the Hart family well. Owen wrestled for Oric's promotion in Wales. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a bizarre... I was talking about this on Twitter this morning because somebody put some French wrestling up from the early 1980s accompanied by West African djembe music up with a live band. As you do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this, this particular French show was a bit weird because they wrestled in a circus. Uh, the ring was in a circus tent, packed house, and then this family-friendly, nice wrestling show where all the wrestlers were introduced by topless women in bikinis, or bikini bottoms and high heels. Um, oh. That was fine, apparently. And this was on Eurosport at tea time, so it was all okay. <sighs> The 90s. Anyway. The 90s was a weird time, wasn't it? It was. It was weird. <laughs> but yeah, so Orig let go that in one of the matches on color comment on doing commentary for this matches that Owen was going to go to the WWF and tag with Jim Neidhart to reform the Hart Foundation. And I thought, well, that's just drizzle, obviously. <laughs> and now a week later, he went to the WWF and reformed the Hart Foundation with Jim Neidhart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, the next thing we're going to look at, though, was not long after the new foundation, as they would become known, had I think it was probably just before they had that cracking match with the Orient Express in the Royal Rumble 1992, which is perhaps their greatest contribution to wrestling, because it was four guys who had to fill 20 minutes who were really, really good and never got any uh, push whatsoever. So they just had fun and blew the entire card away. It was it really it nearly took over, it nearly took over from Flair winning the, the Royal Rumble, really, but it set the tone nicely. Anyway. The next match, which shows you what a draw he was in Japan, because bearing in mind, the new foundation, let's be honest, didn't set the world afire, did it? However, Ultimo Dragon gives WWE a call in their relationship with wrestling and romance and says, can I have Owen Hart to have a 20-minute main event blinder somewhere in Yokohama? And I they did. See, I was Yeah, I was wondering what the backstory was here, because, yeah, he'd obviously... We've gone from WCW, he didn't want to sign with them because he didn't want to move his family to Atlanta. So he went to sign with WWF for a second time. And then I was like, so he was in WWF. So how has he ended up in WAR <laughs> at the time? <laughs> it was, yeah. As simple as Ultimo Dragon just wanted to work with him then. Yeah, really. Ultimo Dragon, big fan of the Dynamite Kid, big fan of the Canadian style of wrestling. And mm-hmm. it was obviously... Ultimo Dragon kind of saw himself as Wars Liger, because Liger was doing the same thing in New Japan as, as Ultimo Dragon was doing in War, and essentially they were kind of on the same level. Obviously, they would wrestle each other a lot in the coming years. 
Um, and I think he just wanted to kind of have Owen to prove the point and that he could go with Owen. If he could go with Owen, he was going to be as big a star as Liger. And he was. Yeah. Oh, he did. And yeah, <laughs> he definitely went with <laughs> Owen. This was this was great. Yeah, absolutely stunning match. One of the best junior heavyweight matches and best possible junior heavyweight matches of this period. Owen starts out as a babyface and turns subtle heel or later in the match, but really it's mm-hmm. a babyface versus babyface match, and it does everything it can to get <clears throat> to get Dragon over. I'm sure that Vince McMahon had had a word in Owen's ear and make sure that Dragon goes over really strongly, but you know, put in a good showing for yourself as well, make him look like a star, and that's exactly what he did. Yeah, and it was. Yeah, it was interesting to see, like you say, him start to show flashes of that heelness <laughs> throughout yeah. because that's obviously stuff that was going to be big in his WWF career in the next couple of years. And you could see him cracking it out, that kind of arrogance, you know, cockiness, brattiness of saying Ishiban over and over again. <laughs> um but yeah, the way he's like shouting at the crowd and interacting with the crowd, it's yeah, you can see his development as a performer, you know, how he's evolved. And interesting to see like the development of his moveset as well, because he yeah, he cracks out that Hurricane Rana early on and Dragon kicks out. But that was basically mm. a finisher for him in the late eighties, you know, some of the yeah. early matches I watched. Um and yeah, he's cracking out like the snap suplex which is very dynamite of course and yeah 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 just this evolution of his style over the course of all these videos is really interesting and yeah it's like you say it's a fantastic match because the speed and fluidity that they're working together and obviously there's great mat work in the middle and back and forth submissions technical stuff as you'd expect but yeah as they go down the closing stretch and you know all the back and forth counters the dives to the outside um you know the one where basically owen gets kicked off the top and dragon does that dive through the corner that he used to do is still absolutely nuts and again this is 1992 <laughs> they're pulling this stuff out you know? <laughs> it's crazy um and yeah like um I enjoyed Ultimo Dragon putting the sharpshooter on Owen as well. That was a nice little touch I enjoyed along the way. But yeah, it's just it was just really great like to go back and see again the early nineties and the the kind of speed of this match is just is crazy really. If you like this match, if you go back to last week's episode, you could listen to me and John Dinsdale talk about the War Six Man tournament that was mental from 1996. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's had Nobuyuki and John Tenter and all sorts of shoot craziness going on in it. Um, and with two some two or three great junior heavyweight matches in it as well, including Ultimo Dragon and one uh, El Lion or Dos Lion or Lionheart, as he was known. What happened to him? Yeah, did, did did he ever achieve anything? After I don't know. <laughs> I mean, long blonde hair and leather jackets. Who, who knows? <laughs> Could be quite big. Anyway, uh, we'll go to the last match of our selection, and really, it kind of shows the the deconstruction of Owen Hart, as it were. Um, this is later in his career, in 1995. It's against Razor Ramon, and he's now the king of hearts, Owen Hart, and it's from Stu Hart's 80th birthday party. Uh, a stampede last hurrah and celebration of stampede wrestling and interestingly owen doesn't come back as a babyface, which is the obvious thing to do he challenges scott hall for the intercontinental championship as a full-on heel 
which must have yeah. been really hard in an arena he'd been cheered in for years. Yeah, that was that was fascinating watching it, like because he is in full full heel mode as well, and it's yeah, it was re- really interesting decision to do it that way. Yeah, I mean the match is really good as you'd expect. Mm. It's got, I mean, Scott Hall and isn't you know the greatest wrestler in the world, but he has an incredible wrestling IQ. Most mm. people will tell you he has an incredible way of understanding how a match is going to work and understanding how an audience is going to work. It's why WWE still put a lot of stock in his words and stuff, especially recommendations. And um, he's well known for his wrestling acumen. And Owen isn't the wrestler he was, partly because his character won't allow it. He can't do the high-flying stuff anymore. People would cheer for him. <laughs> but also, at this point, his knees weren't not what they want to wear either. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. You know, he's, he's a lot slower moving, but he doesn't have to rely on aerials to be a wrestling genius. He knows exactly what to do and exactly to do things in the right places. Bit of a, a standard WWF squib uh, dusty finish, though. Yeah, this was interesting, yeah, because it's like, it's so, it's like a fake-out finish where Owen cheats, I think he hits Razor with the microphone, appears to win, and then instead of DQing him, they just restart the match. Yes. Which it was, was a strange one. The standard thing to do in this situation is the dusty finish where, um, it's usually, the it works the other way around, where the heel, uh, <clears throat> the heel, um, Blow blows the wrestler, which the referee sees after a ref bump in the corner of his eye. Then the then the baby face gets a, a gets a cradle on him. The second referee comes in, counts to three, but then the first referee disqualifies the, the heel champion. It was known as the Dusty finish, which I think is unfair because yeah. I don't think Dusty did it as anywhere near as much as what people thought he did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it was it's considered a bit of a. a a washout, yeah. The impact wrestling and TNA became masters of it in the mid 2000s and 10s. Um, uh, Nick Aldis's championship run, unfortunately, was strewn with dusty finishes. Um, <laughs> as Nick said, it used to be the worst booking meetings in the world. It was like, you're going to win really weakly, but we'll make you look strong. Um, but this is that kind of match and it's kind of protect Razor protect Owen Owen still loses Um, uh, and it just like and I'm like but there's like 3,000 people going to see this in in Stampede alright it's Owen's hometown but I'm sure he probably wouldn't lose anything by getting pinned yeah that was I wonder if that was the thinking though because it's like it's you know it's a Stu Hart show it's a Stampede show so let's make it look like Owen is going to win. I, d- I don't know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird one, yeah. It is a weird one. But having said that, I mean, it does show what Owen was capable of without all the trappings of the aerial wrestler he was known for. He, he really showcases an emotional night for him. This talk with him about like his father before the match and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it shows off what a, a, a great wrestler he could be long into his career, we're, we're talking 11 years in here, and for aerial wrestlers, 11 years is a is a is a big point, isn't it? It's a big mm-hmm. point of attrition for your knees and for your back and for various other things you require to have later in life. Um, but yes, so yeah, having watched all, is, sorry, sorry, I th- yeah, I think this is like uh, still a really good match, like you say, and he Owen is really good 
at his role as well. Yeah. <laughs> because one thing that stood out to me was when he throws Razor into the corner that and the top rope collapses, which obviously mm. wasn't supposed to happen, but Owen just doesn't miss a trick. He's immediately choking Razor with the rope. <laughs> like, <laughs> which, yeah, that just shows like his wrestling IQ that it's immediately he's grabbed the rope and is doing that. Um, and yeah, like, like you say, I think you watch him in this period and yeah, he's slowed down. But he is so good at his role and he's still an incredible worker, particularly like at the technical wrestling side. And yeah, I think it just made me think like what could have been really because, you know, he Mm. had that amazing run against Brett in 94 and then it felt like they never truly capitalized on it. And I think in part of that was because they'll claim it didn't move the needle as much as they thought it should have done. But they're very quick to make excuses when they like wrestlers. We know that, like from yeah. like Shawn Michaels' first run on top, John Cena's first run on top. You know, they weren't hugely successful, but they were happy to, you know, make excuses because they like those guys. So they do adjust the narrative when they want to. So yeah, I think. I mean, I think I don't think Vince ever saw anything in Owen that that saw him as a star. But clearly, there is evidence here that he was a star. Yeah, it's. I don't it's think crazy. he was. Yeah, Sorry. I don't. I was gonna say I don't think he was a potential star in the WWF the way he was a star everywhere else because he couldn't do the things he did everywhere else in the WWF. If that makes sense, I mean the the way the, he is clearly a main event caliber wrestler in any other company, mm. and there are some guys who are just like that. I mean, Tony Anthony is a really good example. Dirty white boy, Tony Anthony the quintessential Southern wrestler could main event any show from Tallahassee to, you know, LA, anywhere in that Southern belt. He was absolutely a main event superstar, but put him in a different environment like the WWF and he becomes TL Hopper. Well, he's not going to get anywhere anyway, being a wrestling plumber, but Mm -hmm. he was never given an opportunity to be that mean, dirty white boy heel character that got him so over or anything like it it was essentially hiring him so someone else did. And I think with Owen, there was a lot of that as well. You know, when you look into that feud, Brett was, it was, they didn't want Owen to be the heel brother. They wanted Bruce. And Bruce was already five years past his prime and really wasn't that good to start with. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it is like, and even Brett was going like, Bruce? (laughs) What are Bruce for? Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's something that continues to this day in, yeah. in WWE with, like you say, talent basically getting handicapped before they can even get anywhere. And yeah, yeah. you know, like you say, Owen couldn't do the stuff he could do in Japan or the UK, but. Yeah. You watch his matches in '94 with Brett, and they are phenomenal. Like they are mm. unbelievable, and he is an unbelievable heel in them as well. And it's yeah. yeah, it seems like I think Jim Ross says on the Dark Side the Ring doc when they brought back the Blue Blazer gimmick, and he was like, "Creative couldn't find anything for one of the best technical wrestlers in the world." Yeah. Like that was just disgraceful. I think he said like, "Yeah," and yeah, it's. We talk about it again and again with wrestlers who go go there who are just unbelievable. You're like, they can't possibly screw this one up, and then they do. <laughs> they yeah. manage it time and time again. I mean, I mean, 
I mean, the, the classic example at the minute is Deanna Parazzo and Chelsea Green. And I'm not knocking Chelsea Green. She's an outstanding talent who works incredibly hard and just worked harder than most everyone else to get herself over because essentially she came from a wrestling reality TV show and ended up being an exemplary worker of the highest standard. But they hire her and Deanna Parazzo at the same time. And Deanna Parazzo is a much better in-ring worker, has more poise, is more better trained, has a much deeper bench of skill and knowledge than Chelsea Green has. But Chelsea Green's the one that ends up on TV first and Deanna Parazzo's out of a job. Mm. And a lot of that is because they only hired her so she didn't do all in. Yeah, this this is the the thing, like when you're saying yeah. them signing people, you know, for, so they can't go anywhere else. And there was an element of that with Owen and keeping yeah. him in his contract when he could have gone to WCW after the Montreal screw job and yeah. everything else. And that's still happening now with, you know, AEW pops up and they're just holding on to guys for the sake of it. They haven't learned their lesson 30 years, 25 years later. They're still, they're still going through this same cycle of destruction. And that's not to talk about what happened with his death, which we don't really want to talk about today because there's plenty of stuff out there about that. We're trying to celebrate Owen's life. Mm. But there is a regret that they didn't do the job properly with Owen, that they just didn't see what everyone else saw in him. And that's, yeah. that's, the, that's a tragedy. It really yeah, is. Yeah, because there were, there were flashes of it. And, you know, 97, he got that period, you know, against... Super hot. Absolutely yeah. super hot when he came yeah. back and he attacked Degeneration X. He was so over. Yeah, and on the back of um, the Canadian Stampede show and everything mm-hmm. else, and then you know it just it just never it never quite happened. Unfortunately, no. I think it is. Yeah, it's such a shame because and you, and you look at that evolution from that kid that gave that the promo against Dynamite Kid from Owen's point of view is dreadful. Let's be honest. It, it's yeah. just <laughs> it's, it's mindless. It goes nowhere. He's just angry for no reason. 15 years later, he did colour commentary on an entire pay-per-view, having had no commentary experience and was one of the best commentators of that particular time period. Yeah, oh, yeah. That period when he was, you know, Slammy Award winning. Yeah, <laughs> he, just, just, he, he was such a good talk. He was so obnoxious. Yeah, he had the whole package. And yes, he'd slowed down in the ring, but so would Steve Austin at that point. So would Bret Hart at that point. Yeah. You know, it was, it was astounding. Yeah. But thank you very much for listening to our show today. It's not been a great weekend to be a wrestling fan. We hope you have a much better week this week. And if you do need to go speak to somebody, go talk to the Samaritans. They are good people who will give you someone to talk to. I'd like to thank my guest today, Mr. Alex Watt. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, like I said, I hadn't seen quite a few of these matches. So it's been it's been really enjoyable. Like, rest in power, Owen Hart. Indeed. Um, you can find Alex on AlexWatt187 on Twitter. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find the show, The Troopany Show, on Facebook and on Patreon, where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. You can also find the show on Twitter as Troopany Show. Please go talk to our sponsors and partners. Powerslam.tv will give you a three month with you use the subscription Mullet Watch. Um, and when you get subscribed with them, and also Empire Wrestling Magazine, who are awesome and we'll have a new issue out soon take care and we'll see you soon bye are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling 
Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.